Waverly Fitzgerald is a resident writer in the 2008 Jack Straw Writers Program. In this program, you'll hear selections from her interview with program curator Judith Roche. This project began as a series of essays. Each of them is a learning experiment in a way where I'm trying to look at one way of knowing plants. I picked flowers in specific because I thought they were really visually appealing and I was curious about what I could find in my neighborhood at all times of the year. And I'm actually, the first experiment was to learn about the names of flowers and to try to identify all these mysterious things that I was walking by every day, but I had no idea what they were. And that was involved reading and then doing field research, going to nurseries and going through plant catalogs and asking people I met to tell me about flowers. I went on several walks with people who could identify plants for me. So the end result, the essay is really the thing I'm trying to get at because I find I often learn the most through writing and it's the process of taking that experience and then distilling it and trying to understand it differently through writing that's important to me. It seems like there's some kind of connection with the life cycle that the flower represents and I think that's pretty obvious when you look at them. The transitory nature of their lives and yet the full cycle they go through, you know, within a year. So we Mm -hmm. get to watch that process. I mean, I've also, in the course of my work, uh, discovered a a study that some scientists did to prove that having cut flowers in the house um, lifted people's spirits. And I thought, well, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of obvious. We all know that. But they actually did a study to establish it. So I think there's this incredible pleasure and beauty that we get from flowers as well that's important. Mm Mm-hmm. Now you'll hear Waverly's live reading at Jack's Draw Productions. I'm reading tonight from an essay in what I hope will eventually be a book of essays called My Year in Flowers, and it's about my attempt to learn about nature in the city. Um, Some scientists are now identifying the city as a unique ecosystem of its own, and I thought I would study the natural world around me just by learning about what was going on in my neighborhood, specifically Capitol Hill. So I assign myself a topic every month, and for the month of February, my topic was phonology. So this essay is called Practicing Phonology. It starts with an epigraph from Thoreau. It's not what you look at, it's what you see. When I first told my friends I was becoming a phonologist, they were confused. One thought I was going to run my fingers over his skull, feeling for bumps and knobs. No, I said, that's phrenology, not phanology. Another friend thought I was studying fun. (laughs) Truly an admirable quest, but not the one occupying my mind, although phonology can be fun. Phonology comes from the same Greek root word as phenomenology and phenomena, and it's a word which means to appear. Phenomenology is the philosophical study of phenomena, My favorite phenomenologist, Gaston Bachelard, tracked the appearance of wind and fire, water and space, through poetry, art, myth, and dreams. Phenologists are more rooted in the natural world than the world of the mind inhabited by our philosophical comrades. We track the appearance of unique seasonal events, snow that stays on the ground, ice breaking upon a lake, migrating birds returning, buds opening, leaves unfurling. Birders keep life lists of birds sighted. 
Phenologists maintain charts showing the dates of the same events year after year, so we can identify patterns and say things like, the lilacs are blooming two weeks later this year, <laughs> which is true. Here are some unique markers that phenologists have studied. First leaf, first bloom, ripe berries, first robin, first territorial fight between robins, first robin's nest, first cutting of lawns. For a while, I considered calling myself a plant hunter, but that conveyed a different image. A plant hunter would stalk plants for a purpose, perhaps to add to a collection or to use for food or medicine. A phenologist is an observer. Picture me with a clipboard and a white coat, standing in front of a forsythia bush and counting the number of fully open blooms. <laughs> in fact, this is not that far from the truth. An outside observer studying the phonology of Waverly would notice that I frequently stop in my tracks and spend minutes staring at a shrub or peering up into the branches of a nearby tree. In this behavior, I am not that different from my faithful research assistant, Pepe the dog. <laughs> Although he prefers to linger over the elusive sense in the grass. The language of phonology is as delightful as it is precise. Budburst is defined as the date when the widest part of the newly emerging leaf has grown beyond the ends of its winter bud scales. First bloom, for most flowers, occurs when the petals are open enough so you can see the stamens inside. Other markers such as full flower and full leaf are indicated by percentages. Full leaf means 95% of all the leaves on the plant are open, while full flower requires less of a show, only 50%. In plants that have catkins or cones, first flower occurs when the plant starts disseminating its yellow pollen. These measurements help create a standard process that can be easily quantified but end up omitting the true sensory experience of being with plants, like the crinkled, glossy texture of the dark green leaves of the passion flower unfurling, or the spatter of spent maple blossoms on the sidewalk crunching underfoot. I first noticed spring in the tips of the trees. One day they are dead, gray, brittle. The next day I notice a plumping of the twigs as the sap rises, drawn towards the promise of light. The buds of the cherry trees, hard round knobs that formed in the fall, split to reveal a flash of pink along the seams. I track fragrances as well as blossoms, waves of color along with unfurling leaves. That first flush of red in the trees, a halo of color, observable but not measurable. And the elusive fragrance that is always my first sign of spring. It's a haunting sweet scent that tantalized me for years before I finally identified it as the almost invisible white flowers of the Sarcococcus humilis, or sweet box. One of my favorite phenological events is what I call the season of pink snow. We're just at the end of that now, when the cherry blossoms fall from the trees. The sidewalks are spotted with petals. The parked cars are speckled with petals. The gutters are piled with drifts of pink petals. I wrote a haiku two years ago recording one variation of this event. Raindrops and pink cherry petals falling together. Another favorite event occurs every year in June when the crows fledge. Young birds perch in awkward places like the railing of my fire escape or the roof of a parked car, and their parents flutter nearby squawking, trying to shoo their offspring towards safety. Every time I note one of these seasonal markers, 
I write it into the pages of a book of days I keep for this purpose. The entries form a palimpsest through which I glimpse the drifting boundaries of the natural world around me, the slide of lilacs toward the end of April, the upswell of woodruff in time for May Day, the layers of fragrance weaving in and out of my walks. Underlying these entries is a map of my territory, for I also note the location of the phenomena. One May, while leaving the local library, a sweet scent alerted me to the presence of a patch of lily of the valley, basking in the sun against a south-facing wall of a nearby brick apartment building. Every year, I seek out that same patch, as faithful as any returning robin. The internet has changed phonology rapidly and for the better. Now, information can be gathered instantly and displayed visually so people all over the world can contribute data and view the results. A British website called Nature's Calendar, sponsored by the Woodland Trust, features interactive maps which document the first appearance of certain trees, shrubs, flowers, grasses, birds, and insects. Just click a button and dates slide by on a graph, illustrating the rise and fall of submitted data over time, while dots slowly pepper a map of the British Isles showing the location of each sighting. One of my favorite websites, Journey North, provides interactive maps for North America, plus great educational materials designed to be used in classrooms. You can learn how to identify a robin's dawn song and five other tunes robins sing as well, or what causes the flush of red in the first leaves of spring, anthocyanins, the same pigments that color blueberries and grape skins. In February of 2008, I signed up via the internet to provide data to a phenological study called Project Bud Burst, sponsored by the National Phenology Network. Powered by that great burst of enthusiasm which launches spring, I promised to report on 10 plants, all of which I expected to find in my immediate neighborhood. Two flowering trees, black locust and linden, two common ornamentals, lilac and forsythia, several flowers including California poppy, common yarrow, and purple passionflower, and a few weeds, dandelion, white clover, and field mustard. But it was much more difficult than I expected the plants were not where they were supposed to be, nor did they behave as I thought they should. <laughs> the black locust tree at the end of the block never awoke in the spring, but seemed frozen in a perpetual autumn, its hunched branches hung with brown leaves and long, dark seed pods. I learned these trees live an average of 100 years, so I figured this tree must have been planted in 1907, which is about the time the apartment buildings in my neighborhood were being built. Then one day in May, while walking the dog, I looked over at the tree and was startled to see a shimmer of chartreuse along its branches, small green leaves uncurling once again. I was not so lucky with the lilac, which used to bloom behind my apartment building. It was once so tall the tenants on the second floor could reach out and pluck the flowering sprigs from their windows. But when I went hunting for it, I found not a trace. It had vanished in a tangle of blackberry brambles and butterfly bushes. The dandelions seemed the easiest to find, but which ones should I choose as subjects? <laughs> Some sprang up jaunty and tall in spaces between yards. Others poked up through the fringe of ivy edging the bank across the street. Those growing in lawns where they faced the menace of mowers were flat as pancakes. Still they bloomed, opening yellow rays to the sun, but only when it was out. On cloudy days, they remained clasped within a purse of green sepals. Phenology has many benefits besides the simple pleasure of living more closely attuned to the natural world. Phenological observations help birders, farmers, gardeners, and others by correlating natural events. 
Farmers know to plant peas when the daffodils bloom and corn when the apple blossoms fall. Mushroom hunters in north-central Wisconsin go looking for morels when oak leaves are the size of a squirrel's ear. <laughs> Phenological records help demonstrate the effects of global warming. Dr. Aono of Osaka Prefecture University in Japan combed through ancient records to compile a list of all the dates since the 11th century when the cherry trees bloomed in Kyoto. This record was kept because the blooming of the trees signaled the start of the cherry tree festival when people celebrated under their frothy pink petals. The famous Japanese poet Basho, who lived in the hills near Kyoto, captured the pleasures of this event in this haiku. Under the tree, in the soup, salad, and everywhere, cherry blossoms. <laughs> Although the date of flowering has moved backwards and forwards over centuries, the cherry trees of Kyoto are now blooming earlier than at any previous time. Mr. Fujiro Shinagawa was born on April 15, 1916, in the middle of Cherry Blossom Festival. By the time his daughters were in high school, the festival was celebrated on April 8th. Now his grandson celebrates Cherry Blossom Festival with his schoolmates during the last week of March. Cities, like Kyoto, as they grow, create warmer environments for plants. But part of the change, about 6 degrees centigrade, can be attributed to the average global increase in temperature. Scientists Premack and Hiro Yoshi, who wrote about this phenomenon, note that the famous cherry trees of Washington, D.C., which were gifts from Japan to the United States, now flower one week earlier than usual, thus providing an example of the biological impacts of climate change right on the doorstep of the American government. <laughs> I have to confess that my phenological project had little to do with wanting to know the names of plants or the dates they bloomed in a particular year, but sprang from a deeper hunger to feel connected with the natural world. My observations, while making me more aware of the plants in my neighborhood, kept me at a distance. The plants, the object of my scrutiny, but still objects, peered at, categorized. I had tried collecting plant specimens at one point in my youth and found it almost as distasteful as the idea of collecting butterflies. This felt similar. One night, while I was walking home from work in the dark, I noticed my mind was churning over my list of to-dos. Walking during the day in my role as a phenologist, I was freed from this incessant mind chatter. I longed to enjoy the same immersion in the present, the same attention to my environment in the dark. Yet phenology implies observation. How could I be present to the plants when I couldn't see them? Then I remembered the research done by herbalist Stephen Herod Buner. He studied the traditions of herbal healers in indigenous cultures. They said they learned about plants by listening to them. The plants communicated how they were to be used and explained their qualities. Sometimes they sang songs. I wondered if I could tune into the plants as well, feel their growth in the dark. So I walked a little more slowly through the soft night air, my head tilted a bit to the side to see if I could pick up any messages from the plants. I was blown away by what I experienced. Every plant I passed was singing its own song. No distinct words, no instructions for their use, but their energy was clear. Some were lively, some greedy, some dispirited. That was the English ivy. <laughs> I had felt the energy of trees before while hugging them. 
But this was quite different, more like walking through clouds of lyrics sung in a foreign language. In this case, not looking at the plants helped me to truly see them. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2008 curator of this program is Judith Roche. Music performed by the Bird Tribe Orchestra and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Amy Broomhall. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.